This is a Stimulus Network podcast. Hello and welcome back to The Cosmic Shed. I'm Andrew and today's episode will see us exploring a fascinating area of wildlife filmmaking in the company of... Daniel Huertas. Um, I'm a producer and director working with... Uh, studio Silverback at the moment, part of Silverback Films, um, mostly focused in natural history and conservation documentaries. Okay. How does Studio Silverback fit with Silverback Films? Well, Silverback Films came first, and then they realised that, so the the, people, the founders of um, Silverback Films realised that they wanted to have uh, conservation-focused content, be very mission-driven in trying to make content that helps work towards a sustainable future and using the media, which they know very well, to do that. And so they then brought in Colin Butfield from um, WWF uh, as the director of the company and then one of the producers that's worked in a lot of conservation content here at Silverback Films then became the creative director at Studio Silverback. And now we make contact our content really sort of with the same uh, quality that Silverback Films make. So that's really sort of high-end quality content, but but uh, based around, as, as I say, sort of saving, helping to save the planet if we can, solve the, the dual crisis of climate change and nature loss and the many other crises that we have going on um, in the uh, ecosystems and environments, but do that in a very sort of beautiful, um, beautiful way with great storytelling. And are those films shown in different places to where the other Silverback films are shown? Well, not necessarily. We made the David Attenborough feature, um, a life on our, a life on our planet, or David Attenborough's Life on Our Planet, which went on Netflix, and it was a cinema release to start with, and then um, most recently we did the Earthshot series, and the Earthshot Prize. And that was a BBC. That was BBC One, and then an iPlayer. So our ambition is to try and go for, I guess, a big audience, often a mainstream audience, um, which, you know, in many circles isn't necessarily the way that you want to push uh, a conservation narrative. Um, often it can be more targeted, but um, we do that just so that we're reaching the most people, and then we get the budgets to make it in a very beautiful way. And at the moment, then we're. Um, just working on some various commissions, trying to get the next next big uh, project off the ground, whether it be feature documentary or series. Um, we're in that process at the moment. Okay, so you've mentioned Earthshot. We should mm. probably talk about that. What was your involvement in that? I produced and directed the first episode, the nature episode. Wow. How was that? Well, can I swear? Yeah, you can. <laughs> it was... It was bloody hectic, actually, and just simply didn't have as much time as we wanted. You know, we we had got a relationship with um, the Royal Foundation, which we're super fortunate to have, and became their media partners. But became their media partners and had this idea of making a series based on the launch of the Earthshot Prize, the, the greatest, the, the largest prize for conservation um, in history. And and then said, well, hey, you know, as is the way of Silverback and Studios, is that we want to up the ambition 
Um, we want to make an amazing series. It's got to be beautiful. We think the best way it can be is that we do an episode on each of the prizes and um, we'll get as much money as we can to put in to on screen, making it as beautiful as possible and telling the story about it. Seeing if we can get David Attenborough and some of the Earthshot Prize Council members to be involved in it. So super high ambition and say, well, we need to deliver it within a year, uh, which I don't know how much you know of television production, but to make something that's beautiful and big is very difficult within a year. Um, and one of the things that that meant was that we had to try and give ourselves the longest filming window possible. And this was during the second bout of COVID, not the second bout. It might have even been the third. Uh, so the start of 21, where we had more lockdowns, we went into the uh, the traffic light system um, of travel early in that year. So in the February, the first shoot that I had, I ended up not going. I chose the, during the week that we were about to leave not to go because the chances were that the country we were heading to might go into a red, red light situation, which meant I'd have to quarantine in a hotel when I got back, which is hard enough with my, for my wife and children who she's working full time and she has to be managing the children while I'm away filming anyway but then to add two weeks where I'm stuck in a hotel at the end of that just was simply not fair on her so I decided I wouldn't go so I actually went on none of the international shoots for that um, and then all the shooting across all the episodes and the five episodes happened in a five-month window and then we went into the edit all at the same time which is unheard of really and Reasons for that is that it puts massive strain on your post-production team, the, the the tech team that manage all the, the rushes when you're filming everything, especially shot. But also there are no learnings that come out of a delayed delivery. So for example, I was doing the first episode. Often the first episode is made last because you learn through the production uh, and you can pinch the best shots that they've gone through all their rushes to find. You can you, you can utilize the learnings and then you can make this first episode, which has to land hard and be the thing that sells the rest of the series, essentially. Well, I ended up being joint first in the in the edit, uh, roughly, or maybe I was second, but either way, not the way we would have liked it. So, you know, the, the episode that went in first got to rough cut first, and they had their notes just as I was about to deliver my rough cut. So I had no learnings really to go into, to go into that. So it was really problematic. All the music as well was composed beforehand. Again, really unusual. So we went into the edit with 25 tracks and that was it. Um, normally you have, you put what you want into the edit and then the composer takes that on and then they, they compose from that, but that couldn't happen. We didn't have enough time for them to compose for five episodes at the end in our super short, small turnaround. So anyway, we did it. We made it work as often as the way with TV. You just get it done. And um, and hopefully, you know, it, it looks good. Yeah. No, it's a, it's, it was a massive thing, wasn't it? Because obviously we were watching it in one of the peaks of COVID. <laughs> you know, don't know quite where we are at the moment, but, um, you know, when and uh, it was lovely to kind of, you know, see the world again, you know, in that way which is really nice. Um, just to go to music slightly there. So I mean, if you're, do you, how much do you work with composers yourself as a producer director? Uh, yeah, I mean, quite a bit. When, you know, when you have to have something specially composed, be specially composed, then yeah, you work with them quite closely. 
And are um, you uh, like? Does it? Are they all the same? Like, does that process of you editing it and then sending it to the to the composer to compose to effectively? Do they all work like that, or do they? Is it slightly different? It does vary, and um, some composers will not listen to your guide audio at all. You know, we call it a guide. So in the in the edit, you're obviously making your cuts to um, music that you're enjoying and you think has the right tone and pace for that particular piece you know, to, to, to help evoke the feeling from it. Um, but some composers feel hampered by that. And, it, and also they don't want to see, they want to get their own interpretation from the visuals and then make something specifically. Um, I've worked with some, and it depends on budgets as well. If you have a slightly lower budget, so therefore your composer isn't going to go to orchestra, um, which is most natural history, for example, and most documentaries, let's say, oh, most TV often doesn't go to orchestra because that's a really expensive thing. I say most, I'm not, you know, maybe take that with a pinch of salt because I'm not across all television. Dramas, for example, they go to orchestra, etc. because they've got big budgets. But if you're talking about daytime TV, they'll use, our, you know, stuff off the shelf essentially you can buy music from libraries totally fine you have the next stage where you go to a composer and they have a limited amount that they can do but they specially compose but it's all done in their studio then you get the next level where you go and maybe they get a few they get a few musicians in and they can do music get bits of specially composed music in and, and uh instrumentation in instrumentation in. and obviously then you have other things like planet earth Planet Two and Ocean, you know, um, Blue Planet, and these big landmarks, all these big natural history series, and the composer will specially compose everything to that, um, and they go to or and they'll go to orchestra, and the orchestra may have a sixty-piece orchestra, and you know, at uh, some lush studio or something, it's great, and that is chilling um, to sit in. But in that middle ground where your composer is there and he's sitting in his studio or her studio. Um, if you often, if you're putting on some pieces of music and they are big and they're maybe in the past, I've used like Batman, um, Hans Zimmer scores, which have a hundred piece orchestra. And you give that to the composer and he's in his studio. And actually, that can feel a bit daunting because whatever you've used as your guide, actually it's hard for him to sound as good as or as expansive as because of the, what he's working with. Uh, or they're working with so it is it, it can be quite tricky for them so every every, com every composer works works differently um and some like the guide some don't like the guide mm. take each one on their own well, i don't know if you can answer this but would you go to Hans zimmer with a, a Hans zimmer soundtrack from the past and say make something like this <laughs> uh that's a good point actually i've not i've not worked with him and bleeding okay. fingers beating fingers do most of the work on his on his um you know, on his scores that are for TV rather than for cinema. Um, but they're his, but he'll do the title track, for example. But I don't know. I Maybe that's the ideal person to go to, um, or at least going to cinematic music scores as a reference for him, because that's very much what they'd be working from. That might be sort of more relevant for them. Yeah. I'd like to make a film about the deserts and say, can you make it sound like June? That would be ideal. That's such a good score. Isn't it? Isn't it amazing? Oh ridiculous just incredible talk about world building in an audio yeah. form just extraordinary and interstellar as well was a favorite of mine yeah absolutely yeah. colossal and how, how they got those you know the wind from the organs the, the sound of that is just colossal, colossal. yes yeah. 
it's really extraordinary, good. isn't it? Extraordinary. The, the other thing that reminds me of is um, Star Wars, the original one, when, um, as I understand it, George Lucas put Holst's The Planets as his guide track and said to John Williams, can you make something sound like that? And he said, yeah, I can. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, back to the back to the topic in hand. So you, um, that, the Earthshot Prize is on BBC One, mm. BBC iPlayer, etc. But then something like Our Planet, you're involved in that as well. Mm. Um, tell me about the the other films that you made with with Our Planet, or the other film that you made with Our Planet. Yeah, um, so there there was a lot, but most of it most people won't see. Um, so the Our Planet was a the Our Planet is known for the series. Um, but there was lots that came off the off the back of that, which we sort of called the halo uh, content all around the series. Um, Netflix and WWF. Netflix obviously funded the series, and WWF was involved, and they funded other elements of what we of the halo. And the halo was all the extra conservation content that came around um, that came around the series. So if somebody watched an episode, let's say on coastal seas. And then they learned about marine protected areas or they heard about marine protected areas or they heard about restoration of, of the ocean that was that was possible or negative elements of the ocean. They wanted to see more of it. Then we created these contents about how to, like an eight-minute piece narrated by David Attenborough that was about how to how to save our seas, our coastal seas, how to restore, revive our oceans. Uh, so we made little eight-minute pieces about each of the episode topics that really sort of dug a bit deeper into the problems and the solutions in a more sort of precise way rather than telling behavioural stories. We made lots and lots of short films. We made little pieces where we'd interviewed um, the president of Colombia or the president of Costa Rica or the president of uh, New Zealand about how their worries and aspirations for the future of the planet. Um, We made films on business leaders and I made a a 20-minute film a 45-minute film, actually, uh, called Our Planet, Too Big to Fail, which was aimed at the finance sector. Um, and that was targeted content that, as I say, your average Netflix viewer might not come across. But there a lot sort of dissipated into the ether and went through WWF channels, World Economic Forum channels, etc. And then you had this thing like the, the, the Our Planet, Too Big to Fail, that was then supported by WWF and, and was put out to specifically to finance companies and to World Bank and the IMF um, moments and places that were relevant to the, the content in that piece. And we, we targeted straight at the finance sector and that's had a huge impact. Why the finance sector? What's that got to do with climate change? Oh, now you're asking him. This is, this is a topic that we could just have a separate podcast on. Um, so the finance sector uh, has un- fundamentally underpinned all the impacts on our natural world, all of them, pretty much. You know, if you think about how agriculture, the agricultural system works, how how um, the uh, the transport system, um, building cities, you know, every everything needs to be funded. And invested in finance, you know, global GDP is probably uh, in, the re- in the region of 160 trillion dollars. Uh, that is, you know, the earnings of countries around the world. In the finance sector, so 
they're estimating about 400 trillion is is in is in finance globally so you can see the scale the volume of 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 the money that is that they have control over that is controlled by the finance sector so in 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 investing um so much investment happens without knowing the repercussions of where the money is going and so if you're for example uh, blackrock which manage about 7 or 8 trillion in assets which is ridiculous numbers we're dealing with then they invest in the market in the stock market as i understand it now you, you know a finance expert is going to pick me up on some of these elements but if you're if you're just tracking the market then you don't really have a have a hold specifically on now i'm going to invest in that company and that company and i'm going to make sure i support this action they're just following the market and so the market generally will go up so there'll be profit to their uh the people whose money they are managing and that is their duty to make a profit fundamentally investment house has to make money for their client uh they they're 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 not incentivized or need to or needed to look at the impact of that so across the years and as the finance sector has got more and more and more and more complicated um more money is going into places that is causing impact without there being without that being taken into account if you suddenly had to take into account where your money is uh touching so if you are making impacts then you have to pay for the impacts or you have to account for those account for the risks if you have to account for the risk from climate change and nature loss on your books then suddenly you're going to start looking at what am i impacting so those 7 trillion from blackrock that's invested in this huge amount going into fossil fuel companies coal uh, oil um which have been extraordinarily profitable as you know um then you're then thinking okay well this company that now had to just manage let's say now we're at a stage where blackrock has to say am i carbon neutral because that's what we've pledged well i yes i'm going to get my renewables from my my energy from renewable sources and i'm going to get plastic forks uh, you know not plastic forks uh, etc in in the in the building so it's a building i'm i'm carbon neutral i'm not nature in, impacting suddenly they're now being asked to look wider at where their investments are uh and you know many companies i don't doubt are are concerned very concerned about managing that transition to net zero and having to look at that and it's not just a case of now saying well i'm going to invest in the market i'm going to you have to say what am i invested in what is the impact of that investment on my carbon footprint and suddenly the carbon footprint is colossal um and so i'm sorry i've been long-winded with that but you know fundamentally they have they have the greatest impact of any sector because they fund everything but yet they have the undeniably the greatest uh, possibility to make change super fast and if you and you know and the reason for making the finance sector the film to finance sector was because we wanted to say that message that actually this is the damage you've been doing but gosh if you just decide to take this on which you will have to by law now in the UK for example making these things law um you could be absolute heroes in fundamentally changing turning the dial on here and i don't want to make a a bad person suddenly 
get off scot-free. You know, there's an, uh, an awareness that damage has been done, but let's let's now put a line in the sand and say, let's go for positive action. And when you decide you're 40 billion, 40 million is going to be invested in that company rather than this company, then, um, you know, ch- real change is going to happen. One example is that there was huge criticism over a company called Blackstone, different from BlackRock, very different, but similarly was negative in terms of their previous investing uh, to a degree. They invested in Oatly. Uh, you know, Oatly is a very sustainable brand, um, moving us away from dairy products, etc. And there was great criticism. And some people were saying, I'm never going to have Oatly milk again because they've taken money from BlackRock, Blackstone. And really, they've totally missed the point. We have to encourage a company like Blackstone to be investing in something like Oatly and for Oatly to take that money because that money's going there rather than investing in something negative. So hallelujah. Praise <laughs> praise Oatly and praise Blackstone for making that change. Please invest in more companies like that. That's exactly what we're needing. So anyway, little exa- little example. Yeah, that's interesting. Is is that come after your film? Is that something you might point to as an impact of your film? Uh, has that come? No, I I don't know exactly when that happened in the process. I think it was probably during the making of the film. Um, but what there has been a significant amount of impact that's happened subsequently, and people who've people who have been in the film who were maybe quite, maybe a little bit questioned whether the film should be aimed at the finance sector rather than making everyone a public-facing film that goes out and tells everybody where your money is, um, have said that actually they've seen a step change within the finance sector in uh, talking about it and now taking action towards uh, moving to net zero and now starting to look at nature. So I'm now making another film that's looking at trying to link nature with in the climate crisis, the nature loss and climate crisis, so that um, the finance sector is seeing that not only do we now have to take in our uh, our impacts on climate and look at the risks from the changing climate, but they also have to acknowledge that their impacts on nature, which is far more complicated, and their risks from the loss of nature, and that they can do that simultaneously through things like the transition plans that companies are now, certainly large companies are being um, uh, forced, I say forced because I can't think of a better word for it, but they're being, so Rishi Sunak said at COP26 last year that he's going to make us uh, a green finance sector. One of those things that finance companies need to report their impacts and risks from uh, changing climate and nature loss and how they're going to reach net zero. So suddenly finance companies had to go, oh, so what's on my books? Um, and those and those elements are now they're, they're, they haven't taken into account. So our film was very pertinently timed. And now we're making a new one based at the UK finance sector, which obviously has a global reach that's going to come out with a series that we're making with Silverback Films um, next year. Oh, and where will that be? Where will we see it? BBC One. It's called Wild Isles. Um, that'll be in March or uh, April. I'm not sure of the exact release dates. David Attenborough series, but it's it's like a it's like Planet Earth, but based on the natural history of the UK. And obviously, we have one of the most nature depleted countries on the planet. But there's an ex- extraordinary amount of beauty that is still here, and nature that's still here, managing to find a way. And we and we highlight all of it, or some amazing elements of it. And then the, what I'm making now is some extra um, Halo content for that. 
and we're making some business films, one at general business, another that is aimed at the food and farming sector and other other areas. One of them is finance. Um, and so this is like a 15, 20 minute film that's going to be looking at that, linking nature to climate and how companies can deal with that. Do you foresee that ever being in the BBC One series or is it always going to be in these separated films that are targeted to the sector? So only so if you're aiming for the audience that we're aiming for with the Wild Isles series, then the BBC is wanting some escapism. They're wanting beautiful, uh, high-end quality documentary that allows people to sit back and go, oh, this is amazing. I want to get lost in this for an hour. The beauty, revel in the beauty of our country, our nation. Um, but within it will be, will be so, you know, it's difficult to, to put a program on now that's purely that. There has to be some touching on the reality of where we are with our with our country, whether it's in the freshwater system, in the in the grasslands, in the marine episodes. Those will all touch on the problems that we have and the potential solutions but not to a great degree. So these extra Halo films, then we had to assess, well, do we make them for the public? If so, who's going to watch it? What channels are going to put it out? Um, the BBC probably won't take it. And if they do, they'll put it on BBC Four because it's not for the BBC One mainstream audience. Um, or they'll they put it on BBC Two, for example. But instead, then we think, okay, well, where will we have greatest reach? Well, maybe we target the industry specifically. Because if we do that, and we talk to them in, in their terms and we and we link the messages that we need people to try and understand and get on board with because they're you know we're not stupid in the fact that they they know the situation people who have marine businesses coastal businesses know the problems and the impacts that they're facing through climate change and nature loss better than we do probably it's more that we're just trying to link it uh, across business and maybe say these are certain actions you can have and these are organizations that can help you etc so we're just targeting messages often if you target the right people have a greater impact than just a general message and social media comes into this quite i mean obviously those eight minute films are for social media is there a particular one that works better for this sort of thing well because of the length of them they went out on youtube uh and they went out through WWF International, WF UK sort of channels, World Economic Forum channels. So we we went out with organisations that have a reach. We were, we were hoping to go out through Netflix channels, but in the end, for some reason, that didn't actually work. That would have been ideal because then we'd have talked to their audience. They didn't normally get that sort of messaging through their social channels and make it feel like also Netflix were behind it. For one reason or another, that didn't actually happen. So we ended up going through WWF. Now that's positive and negative because you're speaking to an audience that's already converted, um, which isn't the ideal audience. However, within there, people can simultaneously share. And then that then in turn reaches their audiences. And we had certain influencers that we were working with that also shared the content. So it allowed that to spread more widely. So I think we had a pretty good reach. Well, listen, I don't want to take up any more of your time, but it's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you very much. I mean, great to be given the opportunity to come on here and chat. I mean, it's it's awesome. I think I think fundamentally, in terms of however you tell this message, just that we need the messages to be talked about and, and the reason for the Our Planet series going out and, and being probably the first wildlife series that really didn't shy away from talking about the problems and putting in a potential solution was that we need this conversation to be mainstream and you need everybody to be aware and talking about excessively 
climate change, nature loss, currently the two largest crises you know, we're facing, humanity's ever faced. Um, and until we, it just becomes the norm, then we're, we're not really going to be able to take enough action fast enough to, to drive the change we need. Thank you so much to Daniel Retas for talking to me for this episode of The Cosmic Shed. And if you'd like to find out more about everything that he's involved in, you can, of course, visit thecosmicshed.com. And we'll be back very soon with an episode, well, I think we might be talking about sharks and Judge Dredd. And thank you very much for listening. The Cosmic Shed. Science fact. Science fiction. And everything in between. This podcast is brought to you by the Stimulus Network.